Thank you for the Israeli, Israeli Studies Department, uh, the Strauss Center, the LBJ School, the British Studies uh, Program for this uh, kind invitation. Uh, it's a special honor and privilege for me to be here. Uh, when I was a young graduate student, which is already almost four decades ago, uh, Roger Lewis was already legendary, and his work had a profound influence on me uh, throughout my entire academic career. So one of the biggest bonuses of writing this book, and something that unnerves me quite a bit, is being able to present at least some of the research in front of uh, the person who's, who's really at, at the apex of scholarship on uh, British imperialism in the Middle East and you know, so, much, so much else um, in historical research, not, not least the history of the Oxford University Press. I'm going to take a little bit of a risk, um, and I hope it's, it's a good calculated risk. Uh, this is the fifth presentation I've given in the past week. Um, I'm not going to use notes. I'm beginning to think that I'm much more effective if I just sort of tell people what the book's about than try to transmit any one specific argument or aspect um, of the book. So in the next half hour or so, I mean, one should always be very cautious as well of Individuals who say they're going to speak without notes, because it usually guarantees they're going to go on for hours, but I actually have my, watch, my stopwatch going, in fact. So I'll do th- three things that I hope will um, introduce the book to you and give you some idea of what's in this 604-page um, uh, tome. So I want to first provide a little bit of context of the background to the entire story of the anonymous soldiers and of the Jewish terrorist campaigns in Palestine and also the Arab violence that plagued the British mandate. So I'll say a few words about that first. Then I want to talk about of just, if you've seen the book, there's a very long, maybe six or seven pages of who was who, of some of the key dramatis persona. Obviously, I won't go through all of them, but I'll choose four of the key figures and tell you a little bit about their, their backgrounds. And then finally, I'll talk about um, some of the issues, the broader questions or issues that, uh, that the book um, raises. So let's begin uh, with the context. And anyone who knows anything about the British mandate for Palestine, or I should say even more specifically, British rule of Palestine, because it predated the League of Nations mandates, mandate which was awarded to Britain in 1922, British rule of Palestine began actually where the book begins uh, in December 1917 when General Sir Edmund Allenby uh, conquers Jerusalem. And the, over the next 31 years, I think one would quite accurately, if not perhaps terribly chari- charitably, describe the time of British rule over Palestine uh, uh, as uh, bleak and mol- melancholy as a singularly depressing experience for the British uh, for a variety of reasons, not least because of the violence that plagued the mandate throughout its entirety from both Arabs and Jews. Um, and in that sense, I think there's an obvious question one has to ask is, you know, what undermined British rule? And was the British mandate for Palestine uh, destined to fail? And I think the answer is one and the same. Uh, what undermined British rule, and this is, I think, fairly standard uh, in the history of, of, of Palestine, Israeli historiography, are the cl- conflicting pledges that Britain made during World War II uh, to both the Arabs and Jews. Um, in 1915, the High Commissioner for Egypt, uh, Sir Henry McMahon, promised uh, Sheriff Hussein of Mecca that if he provided forces and cooperated in the elimination of Ottoman rule, and the Ottoman Turks were allied with, with the Germans during World War I, 
uh, Britain would look favorably after the war on their claims to statehood and to independence. And if you've seen the film Lawrence of Arabia, for example, or read the book Seven Pillars of Wisdom, of course it was Lawrence uh, eventually leading uh, the tribes that allied under the uh, uh, sheriff of Mecca, and they sweep up the Hejaz, uh, they seize Aqaba, it's a very dramatic scene in the film. They then roar north, thunder north uh, through what's today Jordan, and in 1918 converge on Damascus. So that was one pincer. The other pincer was actually Allenby's uh, Egyptian expeditionary force. Um, Allenby had taken over from a predecessor that had failed on three occasions to break the Turkish lines at Gaza. And Allenby, in really a stunning feint uh, in a sort of a textbook maneuver warfare that's still studied um, in war colleges, um, encircled Gaza, conquered Gaza, and then in short order um, thundered into, captured Beersheba, and then marched on, um, marched on Jerusalem. So these were the two pincers that liberated the land. On the one hand, the British had promised the Arabs, if you fight with us, you'll be granted independence. And then... A little bit less than a month before Allenby conquered Jerusalem, the British government in London had issued the Balfour Declaration. And the Balfour Declaration was, of course, a note sent by the foreign minister, uh, Arthur Balfour, uh, to Lord Rothschild, who was one of the presidents of the Zionist Federation in the United Kingdom, whereby Britain pledged to facilitate the establishment in Palestine of a Jewish national home. So... These two conflicting promises that were interpreted in very different ways uh, by the parties they were made to, I think, put Britain from the, from the start in a very difficult position. That rather difficult position was exacerbated very quickly as soon, as soon as the war ended and actually Britain began to permit Jews to emigrate to Palestine as part of the pledge in the Balfour Declaration. Very shortly after the first new uh, Jewish immigrants arrived in Palestine in 1920, uh, serious rioting broke out in Jerusalem. Uh, the following year, uh, another set of riots broke out in Jerusalem. They spread to Jaffa and Tel Aviv, to Petah Tikva, to the surrounding area. And in response to that second set of riots, uh, the British adopted the principle that henceforth immigrants would only be allowed to immigrate to Palestine based on this new formula of the country's or the territory's economic absorptive capacity. And what that had, I think, the inadvertent impression in creating, at least in the minds of Palestine's Arabs, is that violence pays. In other words, that rioting, terrorism, instability, and chaos could be successful in persuading the British to change their policy because the principle of economic absorptive capacity hadn't existed uh, previously. Uh, Throughout the 1920s, Palestine, at least on the surface, remained calm, but beneath the surface there were very powerful turbulent, even centrifugal forces. Uh, The older Arab elite was being um, progressively displaced by younger, more militant individuals who had less patience and were less enamored of negotiation. Uh, Someone named Haj Amin al-Husseini, who I'll come back to in a moment, uh, who was the Mufti of Jerusalem, sort of the senior um, Arab religious figure in the country, also president of the Supreme Muslim Council, which was the Palestinian Arabs' main representative body. Um, Throughout that period, I would argue, achieved a fusion of nationalism with religion, where opposition to, resistance against Jewish immigration became not only a way for people to hold on to their lands, uh, to prevent this influx of outsiders, but 
vernacular and terms that are very commonly used today, like jihad. Uh, jihad not in the collective, more standard interpretation of the word, but almost as it's used by al-Qaeda and various other uh, groups today as this individual obligation uh, to engage in a struggle uh, to preserve one's faith, was used very effectively by Haj Amin al-Husseini, and this triggered what was really the, um, the far more systemic and uh, far more violent countrywide riots that convulsed, convulsed Palestine in 1929. In the aftermath of those riots, a special commission, one of the 22 commissions that visited Palestine during the period of British rule attempting to provide some advice or guidance on the resolution of, of the country's political future, visited and recommended an even more dramatic climb back of the Balfour commitment than had been contained in the principle of economic absorptive capacity. Now, uh, the Jews' allies in London were very successful in overturning this more uh, significant redefinition of the British commitment. For those of you who know uh, mandate history, this was the famous MacDonald Black Letter. It was a letter written by the Prime Minister, Ramsay MacDonald, basically um, dissing his colonial secretary, and reversing what had been the reversal of policy. But nonetheless, once again, the writing was on the wall, that violence could influence British policy. And this climaxes, of course, in the 1936 to 1939 Arab Rebellion, which was significant, firstly, because it lasted for more than three years. Uh, It was also a countrywide revolt. Um, It was very widely supported. It was as much an internecine fratricidal civil war amongst rival families, amongst town and country Arabs, uh, amongst various groups. But what was significant is that the violence for the first time wasn't directed only against the Jews, both Jews who had been in Palestine for centuries and also the more recent arrivals, but it also was an outright revolt against the British. And of course, on the eve of World War II, especially in the late 1930s uh, with, uh, you know, um, appeasement at Munich, uh, Germany's uh, seizure of the Sudetenland, the Anschluss in Austria, the writing was on the wall that Britain would soon be at war. And it was absolutely imperative for Britain to have a peaceful Palestine for two reasons. Firstly, there are about 40,000 British troops tied up fighting there that would be needed if not for continental defense, uh, certainly for the defense of the United Kingdoms, should war break out. There were fears of a two-front war, that war would also erupt with Japan, and therefore these troops would be needed to secure the Suez Canal and to enable British shipping um, to travel from the Mediterranean to the Far East. So for that reason, the British were desperate uh, to not just militarily defeat the Arab rebels, which they did absolutely ruthlessly, but also to ensure, um, well, as we say in our vernacular these days, to address the root causes, right? To prevent the violence from resurfacing or resurging. And for that reason, the British in May 1939 um, announced the uh, promulgation of a white paper. And the white paper, in fact, did reverse the Balfour Declaration. It imposed extremely strict uh, limitations on Jewish immigration to Palestine. Of course, this was on the eve of World War II when at least uh, even if news of the Holocaust and, and uh, the final solution um, hadn't yet become clear, but certainly the persecution of Jews was already resulting in a vast upsurge of Jewish immigrants coming to Palestine throughout the 1930s, ever since Hitler had come to power, which is one reason why the, why the Arab Rebellion was launched in 1936. 19, in 1935 uh, alone, um, 
more Jews had immigrated to Palestine than in the previous six years combined. So the white paper imposed very strict uh, restrictions on immigration, I mean, almost negligible, Um, proposed ordinances that would take effect a year later that would prevent the majority of Palestine, the purchase of land from the majority of Palestine, and thereafter made any Jewish immigration to Palestine after a five-year grace period uh, dependent upon Arab um, consent. And this further drove home the point that British policy could be affected or influenced or persuaded through violence. And at this stage, a new factor enters into the conflict. And this is a group calling itself the Irgun Tzvai Leumi, or National Military Organization. It was a group that had been formed following the 1929 riots. Um, The original Jewish self-defense force, the Haganah, which literally means defense in Hebrew, uh, had been formed in the 1920s. Um, it was entirely defensive, in fact, prided itself on engaging only in passive defense. It had uh, a doctrine or an ideology of purity of arms, that arms could never be used offensively. Following the 1929 riots and the inability of the Haganah really to respond to this countrywide upsurge in violence, um, a group of Haganah split off and formed their own organization, the Irgun Tzvai Leumi. And in 1937, just as the Arab Rebellion was gathering momentum, becoming much more serious, they began a campaign of counterterrorism. In other words, to stop, in their, what they hoped to do was stop Arab attacks on Jews by basically launching the same types of attacks against Arab targets. Uh, so for two years, they engaged in basically what was a, 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 an escalatory tit-for-tat uh, campaign of terrorism and counterterrorism. And then with the enactment of the White Paper, the Irgun announced that they would turn their guns against Britain as well and revolt against Britain. And in their internal discussions and in their public statements, they're you know, quite unabashed about this. They say unambiguously, the Arabs are using violence and are winning. This is what is affecting the British. It's now time for Jews to use that violence. Well, the revolt was short-lived because World War I broke out. There was a greater menace, of course, to, to Jewry uh, from uh, Nazi Germany, and the Irgun uh, declared a truce. But that, I think, really sets up the political dynamic that I would argue, and argue in the book, effectively undermined British rule. And you have, especially during the final year of, of British rule, senior British officials lamenting both amongst themselves and to London and also to senior Jewish representatives. I mean, this is the problem and why it's so impossible for us in 1947 to rule Palestine, because everyone believes that the British give in to violence. So this becomes, I think, a very important theme in the context of how um, inadvertently uh, the British response to these, uh, to these blandishments, to these threats, to these actual riots and revolts, breathed life into the belief that uh, they could be persuaded by uh, violence. So that's, that's sort of the context. Let me uh, talk about four of the key figures, one of whom I've already, I've already mentioned, and that also will shed a little bit more light about some of the aspects of, of the book. To my mind, one of the most interesting characters in the book is someone named Avraham Stern. Um, I think he can be variously described as a poet and a visionary, um, a dandy and a womanizer, um, uh, an accomplished scholar and classicist, and also a zealot. Um, 
Interestingly enough, he was a pupil of Judah Magnus, uh, the first president of Hebrew University, and someone who was extremely moderate, who believed actually in a binational state and in a unitary state. Stern, as adept a pupil as he was in terms of having uh, an enormous facility for the classical languages, um, did not ascribe to his his uh, educational mentors' uh, approach to politics. Um, he won a very prestigious scholarship <coughs> to study in Rome, precisely at a time that Benito Mussolini was in power and that fascism, this strident assertion of nationalism, and at that stage fascism was not anti-Semitic either, which greatly appealed to him. And upon returning from his period of study in Rome, he turned his back on you know, a potentially budding career as a classicist to become a terrorist, and he joined uh, the Irgun. Uh, within the Irgun, he was always in an extreme voice, um, uh, hearkening back, constantly citing uh, the example of the Russian anarchists and the Russian anti-monarchists uh, during the end of the 20th century who used daring, dramatic acts of violence, propaganda by the deed, um, to wear down, uh, or at least in, in Stern's interpretation, to wear down the resolve of, of, of uh, Russia's um, uh, the Russian monarchy and to inspire the workers. Um, but also he specifically pointed to the experience of Ireland, especially the Easter Uprising in 1916, and argued when the Irgun, who was one of the foremost uh, exponents of the declaration of, um, of a revolt against Britain in 1939, when he argued that precisely as Patrick Pierce and James Connolly had recognized that when Britain was preoccupied on the continent with a world war, this was exactly the time to rise up and revolt, to strike Britain when it was at its weakest, when it's distracted elsewhere, and to wrest for themselves uh, freedom. So this was very much uh, Stern's argument. And on this issue, he left the Irgun um, with a handful of followers. Uh, it was a group that never numbered uh, more than a few hundred individuals. Um, it placed or pinned its faith and hopes and largely in a strategy of individual assassination. Um, and actually, in the book, except for one major instance, uh, which I'll talk about in a moment, it really didn't have much effect on, on British policy, uh, but they were very feared. And uh, Stern himself, in pursuit of his, uh, of his goal of wresting independence for Palestine, actually sent emissaries uh, to approach both uh, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany to conclude an alliance. Uh, this was in 1941. So this is before the Wannsee Conference, where the Nazis agree on the final solution. So the horrible fate that ultimately befell U- European Jewry was not quite as clear, although certainly the oppression and the persecution of Jews was obvious. And again, Stern in this idea of taking advantage of Britain uh, when it was weak thought to appeal to Hitler and say, look, you don't like your Jews, you want to get rid of them, send them all to Palestine, and we'll all prosecute a revolt and overthrow the, um, the uh, British, uh, British authorities. It, didn't, it never went to fruition. In fact, his emissary was arrested en route uh, to Beirut. And Stern himself rather um, ignominiously was, was trapped and shot by British police in 1942. So he's one key figure. The other key figure uh, who comes on the scene in Palestine shortly after Stern's death is Menachem Begin, a future uh, prime minister of Israel and Nobel uh, laureate. Uh, Menachem Begin was born in 1913 in Brest-Litovsk, uh, um, a sort of backwater at the confluence of present-day Lithuania, Poland, and Russia. Uh, he grew up in an environment of rabid anti-Semitism. 
In fact, one of his earliest memories uh, was of walking with his father, um, who was uh, fairly solidly middle-class um, Talmudic scholar and, and businessman. And uh, they were on the street, and they saw a Polish soldier wielding a bayonet, trying to cut off the beard of an Orthodox a Hasidic uh, rabbi. And the, his father, and he said, Begin said this always inspired him to rise up in the need to defend Jews, whoever they are and whatever the circumstances. His father, without any, uh, any concern for his own safety, went up to the soldier, raised his walking stick. I mean, quaint old days, people carried walking sticks. They weren't very sturdy. Hit him several times, and of course this provoked the anticipated reaction where several other soldier, Polish soldiers and police suddenly materialized, uh, beat his father senseless, and pulled him off to jail. But this had a huge impact on the young uh, Menachem Begin. He was someone, interestingly, like Stern, uh, very good with the classical languages, studied Latin and Greek. I suppose you know, we spend all our time these days trying to triangulate you know, what are the core characteristics of terrorists. Um, well, in this case, in this environment, it was, it was a facility with the greats, uh, interestingly enough. Um, he was also a very good orator, a very good student. And at age 15, he went to a rally where he heard Vladimir Jabotinsky speak. Uh, Jabotinsky... Uh, was the founder of the new Zionist organization, uh, what became known as the Revisionist Party. Um, I think even today, Israeli politics is very polarized by right, labels like right and left, which I think are caricatures and not terribly accurate. And this debate is very much uh, in the Israeli polity today. I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu would style himself as the ideological heir to Jabotinsky. Uh, I think I know for a fact that Benny Begin, uh, Menachem Begin's son, would disagree with that profoundly. But the point is, I think it's, it's too easy and too facile to use terms like left and right. Um, the mainstream Zionist organizations in Palestine at the time were labor socialist. Uh, Jabotinsky, I think for want of a better term, was a capitalist, uh, did not believe in, in labor socialism, created the... Um, the, uh, new, the new Zionist organization, what was known as the Revisionist Party, because it, it, it argued for a revision of standard Zionism. And he advocated this very muscular, aggressive form of Zionism uh, that was very nationalistic, that believed that the Jews should no longer be victims, should no longer cower in fear or apologize, but rather needed to stand up for themselves. Um, uh, he wrote treatises on the importance of learning how to use a pistol. Uh, one of his most famous essays um, is often disparaged, but one has to say that it had a very clear vision of the relationship between Jews and Arabs in Palestine. Um, Jabotinsky completely dismissed the notion that, actually Benjamin Netanyahu, among others, still argues that economic prosperity and raising the standard of living of individuals can obviate or defeat terrorists and achieve even a, a modus vivendi where if everybody has a lot of earning power and is well off, that basically there's be no need for violence. He said that was an insult to the Arabs. He said, we have to look at this clearly. We are coming here. This is our biblical lands. They don't see it that way, and we're coming here and taking their lands. They're never going to be persuaded. We should accept this fact. And this is the title of his famous essay, that one needed to build an iron wall that would separate the Jews uh, from the Arabs. So Begin was very much attracted, and you could understand from his background and from the one vignette I told you about his father, why Jabotinsky's ideology would appeal very strongly uh, to Begin. Uh, Begin joined Beitar, which was the revisionist party's youth movement, rapidly rose through the ranks along the way, somewhat belatedly uh, attained a law degree from the University of Warsaw. He was too busy with uh, party activities. But I think what was significant is that 
at this stage, he became the head of propaganda for Betar. Now, propaganda today is a word that has enormously pejorative connotations. In fact, we call it information operations. We used to even call it psychological operations, but that's become even too negative. So we now call it information operations. But basically, Begin became a skilled propagandist. And I think this is enormously important to understanding the strategy that he brought to the Irgun. He was not a warrior. I mean, that's, I've been studying uh, terrorism and insurgency now, amazingly, for nearly 40 years. And this is one thing that's always interested me, is that some of the best of these irregular fighters have had no formal military uh, training. Mao Zedong, for example, would be one example. Che Guevara was, a, was an allergist, uh, for instance. Uh, and Begin was a propagandist. In fact, he did do a period of military service. He very briefly served in the Polish army in exile under General Vladislav Andish. Fortuitously happened to find himself uh, in a unit assigned to Palestine, and shortly after he arrived in Palestine in 1943, he made contact with revisionist party figures, um, saw that the Irgun, having declared this truce against the Britain, have, British, having suffered this split, was in a rather moribund state, and assumed command. And when he assumed command, he understood from the start that uh, the British could, I mean, that the, that, that the Irgun, handful of men, perhaps then there were maybe 1,500 Irgunists with really a meager, very meager arsenal. He understood that there was no way that this handful of men could ever challenge the might of the British Empire. And even though a reviewer this past weekend, someone uncharitably, claims that that's what I stated, that's not what I stated. Um, and Begin basically developed what was a strategy of leverage to use daring, dramatic acts of violence to focus attention on the plight of the Jews languishing either in Europe, unable to escape, or then after the war languishing in displaced persons camps, and on the British who closed the gates of Palestine to them, and there acted as an army of occupation. And this was very much a strategy of provocation, which is always what terrorism is about. It's to provoke one's opponent, especially government or security forces, to carrying out measures that impact the population and that do two things. Firstly, the pervasiveness of countermeasures and security measures, the ubiquity of the security forces, the disruption to daily life, only makes the terrorists look stronger and more powerful. So that was very much part of, uh, of, 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 of Begin's um, strategy. Um, secondly, it was to transform, as he described it in his book, The Revolt, which is really a classic um, work on revolutionary literature. I have to say, most of it, or at least the parts, I mean, it's heavily embellished, as anyone who writes these things is. A lot of it is filled with lies, but it doesn't mean that it's not a classic text. But he describes how he sought to turn Palestine into a glass house, with the world looking in, with the world paying attention to events in Palestine. And I think this is what's significant. There had been terrorist campaigns for 2,000 years before, but most of them had been local directed against the indigenous population or against the occupiers or security forces just in that particular locus of conflict. On occasion, and especially during the Irish Rebellion in the 19-teens and 1920s, it may have been directed back to the metropolitan capital of the country, of the, of, of the country in occupation of this land. But Begin went one further. He played, deliberately played to audiences beyond the footlights, not just in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and in Haifa or in Cairo, but most importantly, in Paris, in Moscow, in Washington, D.C., and pivotally in New York. And New York was so important because that's where the fledgling United Nations 
was meeting in the late 1940s. So one can say that in an era long before 24-7 cable news networks, instantaneous satellite transmissions, Begin really strove to harness the power of the media to illuminate the cause of the Irgun um, and to put enormous international pressure uh, on the British. Um, in fact, Irgun front organizations in the United States, above ground political organizations, were enormously effective in raising money for the Irgun with which to buy weapons, um, getting Congress to introduce resolutions condemning British oppression in Palestine. I mean, this is remarkable. There was no alliance closer, I mean, one could argue to this day, there still isn't an alliance closer than the United States and the United Kingdom. And this became a major irritant in Anglo-American relations and also played a role in Britain's decision uh, to leave Palestine. So this, I think, is Begin's uh, contribution. Uh, Briefly, Winston Churchill, of whom not a lot needs needs to be said in general, he's certainly not one of the anonymous soldiers of the book, but... He plays a pivotal role during World War II uh, that's enormously important. Uh, Churchill, from the time he was elected to Parliament at the beginning of the the 20th century, had always been a philo-Semite or certainly sympathetic to Zionism. Uh, He was an ardent opponent of the 1939 White Paper, despite the fact that it was his own political party, uh, the Conservative Party, that had imposed it. And in 1943, he conceived of really a bold plan to politically resolve the future of Palestine. And he created a special cabinet committee. Uh, He appointed, um, as he told Chaim Weizmann, the leader of the World Zionist Organization, a future president of Israel, uh, the towering figure in Zionist politics at the time. Uh, He said, I've packed it with all of our friends, uh, Leopold Amery from the Labor Party um, and various others. And his idea was um, for the third Big Three meeting, which, w- which was actually held in February 1945 in Yalta, his plan was to convene it instead in Jerusalem and to bring Roosevelt and Stalin there and then to present him with a plan that had been developed by the British cabinet to partition Palestine, basically to resurrect the partition plan that had been rejected um, in 1937 by a ro- that a royal commission had, uh, had proposed, and to obtain U.S. support and Russian support and cooperation and to back it by British bayonets. I mean, this, you know, one can't say, you know, he, Churchill faced opposition from his own party in getting, in getting the, the, the partition plan approved, but nonetheless, this was a bold effort that literally could have changed uh, the course of history. But therein lies also, I would argue, one of the age-old conceits of terrorism. And this is a, a saying that's in the book that, uh, that was um, often repeated by Itzhak Shamir, another future prime minister of Israel who commanded after Stern died, was one of the three commanders of the Freedom Fighters for Israel, Alechi. And Shamir very famously said that uh, a man who goes forth to kill another man must believe only one thing, that by this act he will change the course of history. So Churchill on November 2nd has lunch with Chaim Weizmann at Checkers at the, uh, at the prime minister's retreat. Um, Weizmann is very concerned and says, you know, I've heard rumors of this cabinet committee and I've heard rumors that the partition, the geographical boundaries of this partition that they're going to recommend will not be as large and not lead to the robust Jewish state that is needed. Churchill hastens to reassure him and says, I promise you, uh, you'll be very pleased and that you will stick your thumb into a pie and pull out a plum piece. But he says, we have to wait. 
until, to publicly announce it until after the U.S. presidential election on November 7, 1944, five days hence to ensure that President Roosevelt, who Churchill believes he can get, um, get to support this, uh, will be reelected. And then on November 6, the two young men uh, ordered by Itzhak Shamir to Cairo assassinate uh, Lord Moyne, uh, the British minister resident of sta- uh, the British minis- minister of state for the Middle East, uh, an individual of cabinet rank. So it was the equivalent of assassinating a British cabinet minister. In addition to that, uh, Lord Moyne, apart from being heir to the Guinness Brewing Fortune, a uh, brewery fortune, um, was also one of Churchill's closest personal friends and one of his most staunchest, long-standing allies. And with the death of his friend. Tragically, Churchill turns his back on this and never raises the partition issue. They don't meet, the big three don't meet in uh, Jerusalem, but in Yalta, and an opportunity um, is lost. And see, not speaking by notes, I'm already going on too long. So let me wrap up uh, and, and do two things. Let me talk about one very important Arab figure and then give a very brief precy of some of the, the, the main arguments of the book. Ahaj Amin al-Husseini. Uh, looms particularly large in the book um, as well, as I earlier referred to him as being pivotal in the 1929 riots. Uh, He was present at almost the juncture of all the major instances of violence uh, during the period of British rule. In fact, um, while still a student at Cairo's prestigious Al-Azhar University before World War I, he organized a Palestinian student group uh, specifically to protest even then, the more modest Zionists' enterprise and activities in Ottoman-ruled Palestine. Uh, he was instrumental in fomenting the 1920 riots. In fact, a British military court sentenced him to 15 years in prison. And then in something that was paved with the best intentions but completely backfired, uh, the first high commissioner of Palestine, Sir Herbert Samuel, uh, pardoned Hajamin al-Husseini, Appointed him, grand, appointed him Mufti of Jerusalem. Al-Husseini styled himself as the Grand Mufti, but that wasn't, that's not the exact title. And under the misguided belief that giving him responsible office, and he also made him president of the Supreme Muslim Council, would moderate his more extremist views. Uh, that did not work. As I said, he was pivotal in the events that led to the 1929 riots, the 1936 to 39 Arab Rebellion. In 1937, he fled Palestine, uh, never to return again. Uh, He made his way to Baghdad, uh, to Rome, uh, to Berlin. And in one of the interesting things I turned up at the archives, but unfortunately didn't make it, I made it into my draft of the book, but my editor and saying you have to be selective, as interesting as stories might be, and keep the narrative moving. I had to take this out, but I thought it was fascinating. I found documents in the United States uh, National Archives that listed the salaries uh, paid in Nazi German, Germany to senior party officials, to senior generals, um, to field marshals, for example, Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, and to Hajamin al-Husseini. And he was basically paid a salary by Hitler that was the same as the most senior German field marshal. So obviously he was in close cahoots. Okay, now I genuinely will um, uh, wrap up. So the book opens with a very provocative statement. I'm already on thin ice because in this book I use the word terrorism. Terrorism, like propaganda today, is another hot-button word that's enormously negative connotations, subjective connotations. Um, I use it for two reasons. One, and I'm not a professional historian. I'm a terrorism specialist and been studying terrorism. Uh, 
But I still believe, um, when I was a graduate student, a book by G.R. Elton, The Practice of History, it influenced me enormously when he wrote that one of the obligations of writing history is not to impose contemporary values on it, but to try to portray history as the events unfolded then in as an objective and non-subjective manner. And significantly, 60 years ago, no one had any compunction about using the word terrorism. I mean, we know now the BBC is part of their style guide, uh, eschews the word terrorism. I was stunned last month when, if you read about that horrible Taliban attack on a school in Pakistan where 146 school children were killed, New York Times, the Washington Post, don't use the word terrorism or terrorist once. They use all kinds of, uh, of synonyms, you know, rebels, militants. Um, and gosh, if an attack on a school with school children isn't terrorism, then, then, then what is? But the point is, in the 1930s and 40s, all the major media, media outlets in the United States, in Britain, in Palestine, used the word terrorist. The Jewish community in Palestine routinely and regularly referred to members of the Irgun and Lehi as terrorists. So I'm not making a... In fact, as a terrorism analyst, I may be one of those few people in the world even today where I use the word terrorism and don't apologize for it because I view it almost like an oncologist views a problem or a cancer that they're trying to diagnose and identify. And to me, that's the most uh, proper word. So that's the first sort of uh, third rail. The second one is I ask the question, does terrorism work? And here I think, you know, we're really confronted by a problem that many people don't wish to consider. I mean, statesmen, uh, policymakers, even many scholars argue that terrorism is a failed strategy, that it's completely ineffective, that it never succeeds. And we hear this time and time, time again. At the same time, though, especially having studied terrorism now for four decades or nearly four decades and become increasingly frustrated as it gets worse and worse, want us to say, despite my interventions. Um, you know, if terrorism is so ineffective, why has it lasted for at least 2,000 uh, years? And why is it likely to continue less? Why has it become such, you know, even grown as a means of favored political expression in the 21st century? And the answer has to be that at least the perpetrators of that violence, the terrorists, don't think it's ineffective. And that really framed how I approached this book. The first... Um, Six chapters, the book is roughly 19 chapters in an epilogue. The first six chapters cover the period from 1917 to 1939, uh, the beginnings of the mandate. The next six cover World War II. The fi- so that's 12 chapters there. The final 10 chapters basically focus on the three final years of Palestine to really gauge in as detailed a fashion as possible the impact that terrorism or that violence from the Irgun and Lehi in particular had on British policy and decision-making. And there, I think it's significant. And I think that's one of the important elements of the book. I am not making the claim that terrorists or that terrorism single-handedly resulted in the rise of Israel or the creation of the Jewish state of Israel. I'm not saying that at all. Um, History, as everyone knows, is never monocausal or is rarely monocausal. And certainly when we look at the concatenation of events that led to the creation of Israel, I mean, there are factors that that are obvious to anyone. I mean, the Holocaust and the the suffering of the Jews. Um, Certainly, as I said, the hundreds of thousands of Jews languishing even two or three years, four years after the war in displaced persons camps scattered across Europe. In fact, some of the same camps that they'd been only recently imprisoned that were concentration camps. Clearly, President Truman's intervention 
against the advice of the State Department, against the specific advice of the Secretary of State, George Marshall. So Truman's own support of Zionism, um, the negotiations, the patient diplomacy and negotiations of the mainstream Zionist movements, of course, were important. But what I found is that often, because terrorism is this pejorative word, because no country ever wants to admit that they were um, created, perhaps, in some measure by terrorism. I mean, think of it this way. Terrorists don't call themselves terrorists either, right? I mean, there has never been a terrorist group that has actually used that name. They're always national military organization, freedom fighters uh, for Israel or al-Qaeda, the base, or the Red Army faction in Germany. I mean, they don't call themselves that. So where I think this book's contribution is, is in viewing and putting in context the role that terrorism played, and particularly the role of Menachem Begin in the Irgun, in, I think, not determining the events that gave rise to Israel, but very clearly in hastening and accelerating them, in depriving the British of the time that they would have liked to dispose of Palestine in a way that was much more amenable to their strategic interests and to their um, preferences. Uh, Again, in this review the other day, I was faulted uh, because, you know, the reviewer says, Britain had no strategic interest in Palestine. They had already... Uh, given up India. Yet what I found in the archives is that almost without exception, uh, the British um, uh, Imperial General Staff, the equivalent of our Joint Chiefs of Staff, wanted to retain, were desperate to retain basing rights in Palestine, even after they had surrendered India, because they were, for, for main reason was they had signed a treaty in Egypt, the 1946 Anglo-Egyptian Treaty, which eventually would end the British military presence in Egypt, and they were looking for somewhere else in the Middle East, specifically on the Mediterranean, where they could establish a base. And that the attraction was Haifa, which was one of the world's great uh, deep water ports. It's also the terminus of the uh, Iraq, Iraqi petroleum uh, pipeline that went from Mosul and uh, Kirkuk. And you see, up until the end, even despite having granted independence to India, the British at least wanting to have some residual basing rights um, in Haifa. And I have to say, too, the quote that appeared in that review from Hugh Dalton, the chancellor of the Exchequer, Exchequer, where he says, we can't build bases on a wasp's nest. That was not wasps, plural. In the book, it was a statement that specifically refers to the Irgun and to the, uh, to the potential for, for violence. So basically what that does, I think, is accelerate the British process of leaving and Arthur Creech Jones, the colonial secretary during this period, is is explicit about this in several reflections and communications um, afterwards, and prevents the British from really creating, um, having the time to put in place the type of regime that probably would have been a unitary state that would have had an Arab majority and that, much uh, much like Jordan, would have enjoyed uh, close relations with Britain. And there, and I think, lies the importance of understanding the contribution that the Irgun and Begin, or that terrorism in general, played as one factor in the events that led to the creation of Israel. And I'll conclude by just drawing the parallel uh, to World War I. Um, even as a terrorism expert, I'd be a fool if I stood up here and said, World War I began when Gavriel Princip uh, assassinated the Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo in June 1914. Right? I mean, that may have precipitated the six weeks of crisis that resulted in mobilization and war, but we know from studying the origins of World War I, it was the Anglo-German naval rivalry, 
Um, it was the breakdown of treaties that Bismarck had created. It was Russia's own imperial ambitions in the Balkans to create a, a pan-Slavic empire. It was the decaying Ottoman Empire and the decaying Habsburg Empire that all played a, a factor. But at the same time, we don't ignore the role of Gavriel Princip and of groups like uh, the Black Hand and the Young Bosnians in having played a part in that conflagration. And that really is the context that I've hoped I've brought to anonymous soldiers. So thank you very much for your attention, and I'm happy to answer questions.